Good morning, saints. Good morning, sinners. It's good to be back. I've missed preaching. You're stuck with me for a while. Both of our texts today deal with making choices. Deal with making choices. Moses is instructing the Hebrews before he goes that a life with God requires them to make conscious choices each and every day to follow God. It's not a willy-nilly decision. No, they are to make a choice every day. He declares now, choose life that you and your children may live and that you may love the Lord your God and listen to His voice and hold fast to Him. Choosing life was not just saying, I like that one, uh, like you're picking a donut at one of the shops. It's no, it's, it's, it's much more focused. Choosing life for the Hebrews meant shaping one's very life around, around the life Moses has lined out in the law. You see, choosing life is not only about you. Choosing life also deals with the community that you're in. It was never a passive activity where you sit back and let it happen. Choosing life meant an active demonstration of our choice by the way we live. What makes the Hebrews stand out in the ancient world is that the Hebrews actively lived out their faith, demonstrating certain ethics and behaviors based upon their belief in a liberating God who has given them this law to have faithful community. Choosing well. Luke precedes our story today. If you were to slide your fingers back a little bit, you'd see that Luke uh, precedes our story with Jesus telling a parable about uh, a man who throws a big party, a big banquet. And the upshot of it is, the party is thrown, and he tells his servant, listen, I've got a guest list, I need you to go. Here's the guest list, I want you to go out and invite everybody on the guest list. They're, they're the somebodies in our community. You know, go tell them to come on in. I'm going to have a party like they've never seen. And the servant, servant goes out and, and, you know, he says, hey, you know, my master's throwing this incredible banquet and party. You got to come. And, and Harvey's going to say, well, I, I, I got to do the dishes. Or, you know, Tom, Tom might say, well, I got, I got a car. I got a detail. And all the people in this parable were making lame excuses of why they couldn't go to this banquet. And so the, the servant goes back to Jesus, and say, or goes back to the owner of the house and says, dude, they're not coming. I've, I've given them the invitation. I've laid it out for them. I've told them about all, you know, the pig you're roasting back there. Oh, that, that, they're Jewish. They wouldn't be doing a pig. Anyway, the, the food you're going to have, and it's going to be wonderful. And 
the master or the, the head of the house is really upset. He's incensed. Because all these important people that he invited made excuses not to come. So he tells his servant, listen, I'll tell you what. I get the list, throws up the list, and he says, listen, I want you to go out and anybody you meet, walking down the street, they're going in front of Rocco's Tacos, grab them by the hand and say, come on, we got a party to go to. If they're down there by the Dalmar, come on, tell them to get off Federal Highway and come to my party. I want you to canvas the area and bring any and everybody to this incredible banquet. I don't care who they are. And he does. And Jesus goes on in the parable to say, you know, those guests who were on the guest list and chose not to come, well, they were invited, but they didn't take serious the invitation. And they cannot be a part of the party. Now, Jesus is stirring the pudding. He has been on a travel narrative since chapter 9 of Luke. Uh, he's been in the temple. He is pretty much offended. It's just about every Jewish sensibility you could for the religious officials. And these throngs of people are following him. And, and the, the word that's used in Greek for crowd that we're going to hear is, is not just a large crowd. It's the same word used to describe a mob. A group of people, a large thronging group of people that are on the edge of riot. So Luke 14, verses 25 to 33, is Jesus' call to his fellow Jews, that is the ones who have been consciously invited to the party and banquet, to come, follow him. But thus far, the ones who have been invited to the party aren't taking him serious. It's, this is Jesus' choose life declaration to his um, people of his day. Jesus' invitation to the discipleship that we are about to hear is definitely his way of telling the people to choose life. But the problem is, we hear this text and we go, ugh, it's hard text to hear. It's hard to listen to. It comes across much harsher than, than Moses' speech. Jesus goes from preaching to meddling. So I want you to listen out for three different times in our short scripture where Jesus declares, you cannot be my disciple. I want you to listen out for that. Hear the word of the Lord from Luke 14, beginning with verse 25 to 33. Luke 14, beginning with verse 25. Now that large, thronging multitude of crowds were traveling with Jesus. And he turned and said to them, Whoever comes to me 
and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, their brother or sister, and yes, even your own life itself, cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry the cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Let me give you an example. So for which of you intending to build a tower does not first sit down and estimate the cost to see whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish it, all who see it will begin to ridicule him, saying, this guy began to build and was not able to finish. He didn't count the cost. Or what king going out to wage war against another king will not first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 troops to oppose the one who comes against him with 20,000. If he cannot, while the other is still far away, he will send a delegation and ask for terms of peace. So, therefore, if you do not give up all of your possessions, you cannot become my disciple. This is the word of the Lord. Ouch. So let's get this right. Jesus is telling us that in order to be his disciple, we must hate those people we love the most, carry a cross, which was a terrifying reminder of brutal punishment and oppression and death, and we have to get rid of everything we own. And while we're at it, Jesus says, you know, we're to sit down and count the cost and calculate. We're to do the math and seriously consider whether or not we have the resources required to be a disciple. And we, we pause and we just go, did Jesus really just say that? Jesus? Sweet little Jesus? Yes, he did. The challenge many people have today is that when they read the Bible, they don't read it very well. We tend to read the news, we tend to read novels, we tend to read magazines and articles with a critical eye. We are aware that the author uses certain forms of communication and speech to get his or her point across through the article, through the book. So we know, for example... Then when we are going down the road and there's a restaurant with a big sign out front that proudly declares, home of the world's greatest hamburger. Is it? No, it's not. It's simply an exaggeration that their burgers are really, really, really good. Or how about it's like a car dealership that declares, we've got the best Prices in the state. Come on in and we'll give you a no-haggle price. Do you believe that? I don't think so. 
Anyone who has bought a car knows that's just a giant fishtail. The dealership is always going to try to add on and tack on something to something, something to something to create the cost up. Now, each of us knows that every car dealership cannot have the best price in the state, and we sure know that there will be some haggling. You see, out in the world, outside of the church, we are very aware of the use of things like hyperbole, irony, simile, metaphor, poetry. And if we're aware of those types of linguistic uses and communication tools, we are a, we're better able to read what we read. We know. We, we know that the car dealership, we know that that hamburger, the declaration of the price and declaration of the burger is hyperbole. It's exaggerated to make the point to get our attention. We read stories and pick up on it. We read stories and we pick, pick up on sarcasm. But what many fail to do is to take those same common everyday critical reading skills that they use all the time and they check them out when they read the Bible. Friends, is Jesus really telling us to hate our moms and dads, our brothers and sisters, an old grandma that we affectionately call Nana? course not. Jesus is using the rhetorical device of hyperbole, of gross exaggeration, to the point of making it absurd. And he's doing this in order to say, sisters and brothers, I'm making this so extreme for you. I want to get your attention because you have to put me first above Everything. You've got to remember, back in the first century, Jewish life is built around the family. It's built around community. It was the key to your survival. If all the members of your family died, then you would be somehow adopted into another part of your family. Maybe distant uncle Robert or something. And you would have family again. You see, family represented survival. Methodist pastor Mark Rawls writes and reminds us, the point in the story is not how we relate to members of our family. The point of the story is how we, as potential disciples of Christ, respond to the call of God. He goes on to say, a uniquely challenging divine call invites you and me to an unqualified human response. Jesus is simply asking that we reflect upon our most dear relationships. Our most dear relationships, the, the most prized people, possessions, things. And he's saying, you got that in your mind? Love me more. Love me more than that. I know you love your mama. I love my mama. But you got to love me more. 
I know you love your child. You got to love me more. Hyperbole. Now, the second demand he is making in our text this morning uh, is does he literally expect you and me to go fashion a cross and carry it around all the time, around our back, on our back? Of course not. Once again, Jesus is using hyperbole. He's he's not only giving us a glimpse as readers, a peek ahead as to what's going to happen in his own life. It's Jesus' way of saying that death is a part of your discipleship and mine. Yes, death is a part of following Jesus. It must occur in our lives. Perhaps it's death to unhealthy attitudes that tear down relationships rather than building them up. Perhaps it's the death of partisan morals and ethics and reclaiming the biblical ones. How's that for an idea? The death, perhaps, of our own ego, our own sense of self. So that we empty ourselves of self so that the Spirit can fully direct and guide and navigate our lives. Friends, there has to be death in a disciple's life before there's resurrection. We must endure Good Friday before we can celebrate Easter. And it's not just when we go to the good by and by. It is when we come to Jesus and say, I'm your disciple. Something has to die. Now at this point, Jesus provides two quick comments about doing the correct math and assessing whether or not we truly have what it takes to fulfill these costs of discipleship. For example, have I thought about the lifestyle I have and how that will change once I begin to follow Jesus? Have I computed how my discipleship impacts the way I will use my money, my personal property, my capital, my assets? Have I thought about how following Jesus is going to affect my family? How's it going to impact my daughter, my son, my wife, my husband? How's it going to impact where I work? Will they even know I'm a follower and disciple of Christ? Will they be able to tell that something has died in me so that something else more vibrant and alive can live? Jesus is hammering home the point that before you get on the road with me, brothers and sisters, you better do the math. You better do the math. You better count the cost. Sadly, many Christians in this country don't. They don't. They think it's just a mental, I believe you, Jesus, and that's it. It's not mental assent. It is to get on the road with Him. Now the third demand in our text is that after we count the cost of following Jesus, 
we must give up our possessions. Not just some of our possessions. Not just a few of our possessions. Scripture says it pretty clear. If you do not give up, yep, there it is, all your possessions, you cannot be my disciple. That begins to pinch, doesn't it? Jesus demands that we give them all up. Is he asking us to go liquidate all of our assets so we can be his disciple? No, of course not. It's hyperbole. He is demanding, however, that we place God above everything else in our life. We are declaring him Lord not only of our life, but of all that is contained in our life. That means cars, boats, second homes, investment accounts, pots, pans, electronics, motorcycles, businesses. Whatever we possess, we must give it up back to God in order to remember that everything you and I have is a gift on loan. And when we try to fudge on, on the offering or, you know, they, they don't need this, of course we don't. God's got it all. But you're cheating God. We're cheating God. We've got to place everything outside of our house and put it in the driveway to be picked up so that we can hold on to God. We cannot hold Jesus' hand if we're clutching our stuff. Beloved, Jesus is asking you and me, do the math. He is telling you and me that our faith is not first and foremost a mental assent to believe in Him. No, today Jesus is telling us that believing in Him and being His disciple means that we join the way of life He lived daily. We have to make that choice. Jesus is telling us Believing means to join the way He lives. Jesus loved God more than His own mom, His own brothers and sisters. Jesus literally carried the cross which He demonstrated how much He loves us. He was showing us to follow the way. Jesus had no possessions which led him both to travel light, but also allowed him to focus on relationships that mattered. John Burgess writes, the disciple must leave everything behind. One enters into a new life that breaks decisively with what one has been before. And then he goes on to quote Dietrich Bonhoeffer who wrote, if you remember in the 30s before the rise of the Third Reich, Dietrich wrote about costly grace. He wrote about this text. 
He says grace is costly because it does indeed cost people their lives. But it is grace because it thereby makes them alive. What I want all of us to do today or sometime this week, I want us all to reflect upon how each of us can honestly respond to the demands Jesus makes of us in the story today. It's your mom and daddy. Sell everything you own. Carry your cross. What do we say? How do we respond? So, let's make it simple. Let's each one of us identify just one, just one simple way we can live a life of discipleship with not inconvenient grace, not when I get around to it grace, but with costly Sacrificial grace. Let's identify just one simple way we can do that. What say you? I say amen. Pray with me. Lord, these texts, wow. You raised the bar. Even though it's hyperbole, I tell you, Christ, you raised the bar pretty high. Lord, extend us your grace that we may try to do what you were calling us to do. Help us as community to assist one another in doing so. Help us, O Lord, to create a fire in our belly that we love you more than anything in this world and creation. Because then you will give us the strength to carry our crosses. To put to death that which needs to be in our lives. And to hold everything we have loosely so that we may embrace you tightly. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, so be it.